This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It is day five of the war, both sides meeting at the Belarus border. Ukraine is calling for a ceasefire, but Russia continuing to attack heavy shelling in Kharkiv. This is the second largest city in Ukraine. And there's shocking videos emerging there this morning of injured civilians even as these talks were happening. Meanwhile, the world continuing to react and condemn this Russian aggression. Canada has now closed Canadian airspace to Russian aircraft. That happened yesterday. Canada promising more military aid to Ukraine. I've got conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong standing by. First, have a listen to Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland here. History will judge President Putin as harshly as the world condemns him today. Today, he cements his place in the ranks of the reviled European dictators who caused such carnage in the 20th century. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Chong, Conservative MP, Wellington Halton Hills. He's the official opposition shadow minister for foreign affairs in the House of Commons. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, it's nice to have you on again. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. Let's talk about the situation on the ground right now. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to see what this is happening in Ukraine. The civilian casualties we're seeing in Kharkiv today is unbelievable. Your thoughts on what's going on right now? Well, um, President Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the first major, major European war since the Second World War and a serious violation of international law and our collective humanity. Uh, it's an unprovoked attack, and it comes on the heels of uh, a joint pact between the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China. And I think it represents the most serious, serious threat to global peace and security in the last 80 years. And so uh, we should be very concerned about what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Michael, we saw the Canadian government yesterday close Canadian airspace to Russian aircraft. There are promises of more military aid. Do you believe more should be done at this point? We support the actions taken by the federal government to date. Um, we're also calling on the government to take additional, uh, immediate additional steps. We believe that the Russian ambassador to Canada should be expelled and that Canada's ambassador to Moscow should be recalled. It's clear diplomacy is not working here. Uh, and I think we need to send a clear signal um, about the lack of diplomatic engagement by Russia by expelling the ambassador and recalling ours. I think we also think that the government should issue an order, the cabinet should issue an order to the CRTC of general application to change Canada's broadcasting policy to remove from Canadian airwaves, from television and radio broadcast, state-controlled broadcasters like Russia Today that are spreading the Russian government's disinformation and propaganda. Uh, we cannot allow that kind of disinformation and propaganda to be spread by uh, state-controlled broadcasters like RT. 
Yeah, we've so all- those are some of the measures we're proposing. Yeah, we've seen we've seen other countries do similar take similar steps. Uh, what about kicking Russia off of some of these international organizations? I, I read some interesting calls this morning for Russia to be removed from Interpol, from for example. Do you think there are other steps the world community could do to isolate Russia here and put put more pressure on? Yes, we do. Uh, in fact, when Russia first invaded parts of eastern Ukraine, in particular Crimea, and the two eastern oblasts in 2014, the government of then Prime Minister Stephen Harper took steps to have to isolate Russia and sanction it by seeking its removal from the G8. And Russia was removed from the G8, which is now the G7. Uh, we think that uh, similar steps should be taken with the G20 and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We think Canada should advocate for Russia's removal from those two organizations because of this unprovoked attack and invasion. Speaking to conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong, what about there are calls from some to get more tougher on Russia in terms of a military response, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I mean, this has obviously clearly been resisted by NATO and our NATO partners to date. Is that the position of the, the conservative opposition here? We don't want to get involved in a shooting war with, with Russia, and, and NATO should stay out of it at this point? Is that, is that your position? Well, we have to do two things at once as a NATO country, and, and we as the conservative opposition are advocating for those two things at once. It's a difficult balance to achieve, but the two things are, first, we have to provide assistance to Ukraine and the people of Ukraine as they valiantly fight this invasion uh, by the Russian Federation. And at the same time, we have to ensure that we don't escalate the situation uh, between two nuclear superpowers. And so that's a delicate balancing act uh, to have. I think the role that Canada can play um, is twofold. Look, Canada is a middle power. We are not a superpower, but neither are we a small country. We are a G7 country. We are one of the largest economies, the 10th or so largest economy in the world. And we've got immense capacities. And the two things that Canada can do to not only defend European democracies, but our own security and sovereignty is first... Uh, develop a robust plan to defend Canadian Arctic security and sovereignty. Because like Ukraine, Canada shares a border with Russia. Our northern border uh, borders the Russian border. And I think for too long we have neglected our Arctic security and sovereignty. We need to do things like uh, participate in the modernization of the early warning system, uh, NORAD's early warning system in the far north. We need to fix Um, our broken military procurement system. We need to purchase the F-35 jets, accelerate our shipbuilding program so that we can have an Arctic uh, naval presence. And we have to work more closely with Scandinavian democracies uh, and the United States in the defense of Arctic security and sovereignty. So that's one thing that Canada can do that not only assists European democracies, but also our own defense and security. And the second thing we should do is we need to get pipelines built to the Atlantic tidewater. We need to get pipelines built to the East Coast. And here's the reason why. Russia has weaponized natural gas in Europe. Mm. 40% of all European natural gas comes from Russia. Russia has threatened to cut off that gas. And if it did so, it would, people would freeze, factories would shutter, and the European uh, economy would grind to a halt. Canada's the fifth largest natural gas producer in the world. Uh, But we can't ship our gas to Europe because we can't get pipelines built. So that's the second thing we should be doing as a country to get serious about a proven pipeline. Do do, do you therefore, on that point, do you therefore think that 
Justin Trudeau should pick up the phone, call Joe Biden, and say, build the Keystone XL pipeline. Like, if you take a look at Russian oil exports, biggest exporter of oil in the world, I listened to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney the other day saying, that, you know, it's, it's Russian oil that's fueling this deadly war against Ukraine right now, and, and we should cut it off with, like, energy sanctions on Russia. Stop their oil exports and, and sell Alberta oil, too. Now, he takes some heat over that, saying, really, you're really going to use a war as a pretext to, to pump more oil out of the ground in Alberta? But can you connect the dots on that? Like, why do you think yes, that would absolutely. be a good thing? Yeah. So, so I, I think absolutely the prime minister of this country should pick up the phone to talk to the U.S. president about Canadian oil and gas. And in fact, uh, those, some of those conversations have already been happening. President Biden has been reaching out to countries around the world uh, to ensure that in the event that Russian energy is cut off to Western Europe, that democracies and other partners around the world can step up to the plate to, to replace that Russian gas. So he's been talking to countries like Norway and Qatar to do exactly that. Canada is not able right now to do that. And that's why the prime minister needs to work on a North American energy framework with the U.S. president so that we can get our energy to tidewater. I don't think, however, that sanctions on oil and gas are the way to go. Uh, first of all, um, it still doesn't fix the problem that the Europeans need energy like we do. Yeah, and if right. we don't, if we're not able to replace uh, the Russian gas or oil that's cut off, that still sanctions on Russian gas and oil aren't going to help the Europeans who are freezing in the dark and who can't get industry going. So the 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 other problem with sanctions is that as with Iran, uh, sanctions can be can be avoided. Sanctions can be um, bypassed, and Iran is there's evidence that Iran has by, been bypassing oil the oil embargo for years. And so, yeah. I think the solution is for us in our own country to get serious and to fix our broken pipeline approvals process to get pipelines built to tidewater in this country, particularly to the Atlantic coast. Michael Chong, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about Ukrainian Canadians speaking up now about the war in their country. So many members of the community worried about friends, family, and loved ones back home. Let's check in now with Irina Shiroka, president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress in Vancouver and helped organize that awesome rally we saw on the weekend in Vancouver. Irina, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay, congratulations on the rally in Vancouver on Saturday. That was inspiring to see so many people out in front of the art gallery. How many people came out there? That looked like a great crowd there. Yes, we um, we were told by the police that um, they counted for over 5,000 people. Wow. Wow, awesome. I love it. And I love to see the, the show of support. What is the message you you hope to get out there? Yes, we, um, as you could tell, uh, thousands of Ukrainians and uh, Ukrainian friends came to the streets on uh, on a, a Saturday just to express their um, they thought against the, the war that's happening in Ukraine, that Russia invades Ukraine. And uh, this has been terrifying. It's been devastating for the last four days. The whole world is uh, glued to the to the screens and um, watching how the the fight for peace and democracy is uh, happening. It's heartbreaking to watch, and I can only imagine what it's like for people who have loved ones in Ukraine. Do you, do you have family there yourself right now? I do. I have my parents in the western part of Ukraine, and my siblings and nephew and nieces. And what? yes, it's been heartbreaking. 
What have they been telling you? Well, um, on the time when they are not in, hiding in bomb shelters, uh, they come, um, they call me, excuse me, on my phone and um, assure me that they are okay. So you can imagine I live from, uh, in this really a time period from time to time, just waiting for their call uh, to be reassured that everything is fine. Uh, boy, I'm so sorry you and your uh, the rest of the community are going through this, and I hope your family remains safe. Like When you speak to your, your friends and, and other relative family in the community in Vancouver, what kind of stories are you hearing? Yes, I hear tor- terrible stories from other cities, uh, like um, back in the uh, eastern part of Ukraine, because um, we are, I hear stories from Kiev, from Kharkiv, from major cities that are under attack right now, and... Uh, People are, you know, they are terrified. They're again, they're in bomb shelters. They hide in a um, underground metropolitan. We hear, we hear stories about children. We have, uh, we hear stories about babies being born in the underground. It's it's terrifying. Yeah. Speaking to Irina Sharoka, president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress in Vancouver. Irina, we've seen the world react and condemn Russia for this aggression. Canada has imposed sanctions on on Russia. Do you think there should be more support for Ukraine at this point from Canada and our and our allies? We are really asking. We really ask the world to to close the sky. Um, we ask for a no-fly zone um, that needs to be implemented over the Ukrainian territory. Um, we need to secure our airspace today because tomorrow could be late. We also need uh, more uh, arms, um, like anti-air uh, air systems like Stinger missiles and uh, other air defense and um, like naval defense systems. We, we are in need. The, the Ukrainian army showed uh, to be very courage and brave because um, they, they've been defeating their territory, defending their territories uh, so far, but um, we still need more support from the West. Right. I, we just have one minute left here, Irina. I, I just spoke to the conservative foreign affairs critic about this precise point about a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which right now NATO is resisting. They don't want to escalate the war. They say that would effectively be a, de- a declaration of war by NATO on Russia, and maybe this thing spirals even more out of control. Like, what do you think of that? I think that this this moment, at this moment, Ukraine feels like it's it's been left alone, and uh, we alone stand up to this huge uh, Russian aggressor. We stand up to this, uh, the second largest, strongest army in the world. And we really hope, we really plead at this moment for this, uh, for the rules to be uh, um, resought and um, for NATO to um, come up with some, some better decision. Irina, thank you for this. Uh, I hope your parents and your, the rest of your family remain safe in Ukraine. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, here we go now with the great debate. It's Russian oil versus Alberta oil. Should Canada ramp up Canadian oil production, build more pipelines to get our oil to international markets? The ultimate goal, replace Russian oil. Russia is the largest oil exporter in the world. Critics argue that Russian oil is effectively financing the war against Ukraine. Have a listen to this now. This is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. As I did in Washington a month ago, reiterate, the 
inexplicable nature of President Biden's decision to veto the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have delivered 840,000 barrels a day of uh, 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 responsibly produced Canadian energy to U.S. markets, while President Biden is now importing over 800,000 barrels a day of conflict oil, it, filling the treasuries of Vladimir Putin's Russia, that is fueling this military aggression against sovereign Ukraine. This is unacceptable. And I call on the Prime Minister to make this point uh, clearly and emphatically to the President of the United States that his decision on KXL can be still be reversed. And uh, Alberta can replace Russia as a major source of oil imports to the United States. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. We've got both sides of it here for you this morning. Cody Battershill on the line. He's the founder of Canada Action, which supports oil production in Alberta. Hi, Cody. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Also on the line, Peter McCartney, climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thank you for doing this. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you both of you guys for coming on today. Cody, let me go to you first. You're with the group Canada Action. You're a big supporter of the Alberta oil sands. Uh, Give me your take on the situation right now with the Russian war against Ukraine. And do you agree with what Kenny said there, that it's Russian oil exports are fueling this war? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I mean, first off, we all have, uh, a lot of us have friends, uh, family, uh, people we know in that region. And I just want to you know, say, uh, you know, how upsetting it is to see what's happening over there right now. Um, I think the fact that we could increase or talk about increasing Canadian oil and natural gas exports to the world is one substantive action that Canada can take to assist global markets and society uh, around the world that's found itself in an untenable energy scenario relying on a country like Russia. The Ukraine foreign minister just recently said we need Uh, a full embargo on Russian oil and gas because buying their energy is paying for the murder of Ukrainian men, women, and children. This is a very important conversation as we remain sensitive uh, to what's happening over there. It's not just about building pipelines. It's about a longer-term discussion on Canada's role helping allies and partners around the world um, so that we can do the right thing. It's not just about commerce, but it's about doing the right thing for other countries and for families Um, And as your previous guest just talked about, you know, there's not tough enough sanctions because of the energy scarcity concerns in Europe. Now, Germany's talking about restarting coal-fired power plants. And it's not just oil. It's also natural gas. It's also potash and agriculture. Canada has resources that the world needs, and we should be supporting our partners and our allies. Okay, let me go to Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean... I honestly, when I saw Kenny come out the day of the invasion of Ukraine, um, in a province with a massive Ukrainian population, that his first thought was for uh, Keystone XL and his friends in Big Oil, um, was it made me sick to my stomach, to be honest. I think, you know, uh, a pipeline five years from now isn't going to do a darn thing for the people of Ukraine who are going through absolute hell right now. And I think that uh, Germany and Europe have responded to this crisis by doubling down on renewable energy. Germany recently moved its date um, for 100% renewable energy up five years, and that is the answer to this crisis. It is not Alberta oil versus Russian oil. It is we actually don't need this stuff anymore, and we need to gear up the production of 
um, heat pumps and electric buses, the technologies that help us get off of fossil fuels okay. uh, massively so that we can... Uh, we can no longer be fighting wars over oil. It's just uh, it's insane that we're still doing this in okay. the 2020s. Okay, Cody Battershill, what do you say to Peter's point, especially on the length of time it would take to build these pipelines and get this Alberta oil to market? Like, you know, you, you hear Kenny say, well, we got to build the Keystone Pipeline. Well, that could take years. I mean, who knows? You know, this war is happening today, right now. So how would that pipeline make any difference what's going on in the ground in Ukraine right now? I think in the longer term strategic thinking, Keystone was originally planned around 2008 and President Obama, Trump and now Biden, none of those presidents uh, got it built. And when we increase reliance and in trade with countries like Canada, the most climate focused oil and gas industry on Earth, uh, also a leader in renewables. And I have to say, I'm very pro wind and solar. But as Germany is now talking about restarting coal fired power plants, re extending life for their nuclear power plants and we know global oil and gas demand is growing still and will for years decades to come we need to support all energy policy but today wind and solar alone is not going to keep families warm and food on the table and the lights on and so um, i disagree with what peter is saying um, and i think canada has a huge opportunity building these projects now including and in, very importantly lng from bc quebec and nova scotia also natural gas to help reduce emissions from coal-fired okay. power um, it, it's a very important topic that we're talking about as a country peter um, as we're watching what's happening peter your thoughts go ahead so just this morning the intergovernmental panel on climate change released its latest report of climate impacts around the world world and it's horrifying um, and these climate impacts are threatening national security they lead to more conflict um, it said that we have a brief and rapidly closing window to make this transition on fossil, off of fossil fuels and so we we can't afford to be thinking about long-term fossil fuel use we need to get off of this stuff as fast as possible and if this is the war time uh, setting that people are talking about, then yeah, let's, let's gear up for heat pumps so people can stay warm, uh, for electric buses so that we can have transit that, uh, that supports people to get to work. You know, we can okay. do this. We have all the technology available. It's just getting in the mindset that it's actually necessary. And, you know, uh, circumstances, I think, today point to... Uh, point to that Co fact. Cody what what do you how do you respond to that like what is the evidence that demand for fossil fuels oil and gases will increase for decades going forward so demand is still increasing natural gas uh, is expect LNG is expected to grow by 90 percent to 2040 oil demand oh. is still increasing and is expected to increase for 5 10 20 more years depending on which forecast you look at the International Energy Agency, the uh, Energy Information Administration in the U.S. and others. Um, the head of the IEA said we will still need oil and gas for years to come. And I prefer that oil is produced by countries like Canada who want to reduce the emissions of oil and gas. Blocking pipelines, obstructing LNG, making Canada less attractive for investment has not kept a single barrel of oil in the ground. It has instead allowed other countries to capitalize on their strategic energy advantages and that has not helped the climate. It has not helped families around the world. And now we are seeing this energy weapon used by Russia in uh, Europe this year with a spike in energy costs. And now countries that are not willing to sanction as hard as they could 
because they don't have alternate supply. And last point I'll just make is that while Canada has been delayed and protested and obstructed, both the United States and Australia have built two of the world's largest natural gas export industries, getting their gas for the, uh, to the globe for the highest possible price. And when we okay. do that as Canadians, we will have the lowest emissions on Earth. Okay, Peter, go ahead and respond, and then we'll fit a break in here and take some calls, too. Go ahead. You know, the, the climate disasters that we've already seen wreaking havoc in our communities, the record heat wave, the record atmospheric rivers that we saw last year, are only going to get worse until we stop burning fossil fuels. And that includes liquefied natural gas. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why Australia and the U.S. were ahead of Canada. They have brownfield sites, and frankly, their LNG is just cheaper to develop. So this fantasy that if Canadian LNG comes online, it's going to replace other countries' LNG, doesn't hold up because it's some of the most expensive LNG on the planet. And so it's just additional. Um, And so, yeah, you know, we, in 2050, if we're still burning fossil fuels, we're going to be in a whole world of hurt. And so, you know, we can can make this transition faster. Um, We have all the technology to do it. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about Alberta oil versus Russian oil. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney saying, let's get pipelines built to replace Russian oil exports that are fueling the war against Ukraine. Now, it's interesting to take a look south of the border. Uh, Republican members of Congress also making the case to build more pipelines. They are calling on the Biden administration to build that Keystone XL pipeline, get more Canadian oil to the United States to replace Russian oil imports. Now, Jen Psaki was asked about this, the White House press secretary on the weekend. Here's what she had to say. Energy sanctions are certainly on the table. We have not taken those off, but we also want to do that and make sure we're minimizing the impact on the global marketplace and do it in a united way. I would say that the congressman's recommendations there, the Keystone Pipeline, was not processing oil through the system. That does not solve any problems. That's a misdiagnosis or maybe a, a, a misdiagnosis of what needs to happen. Okay, I don't think uh, the Biden White House has any appetite here to build that pipeline. My guests are Cody Battersville, Peter McCart. Phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's uh, fit a call in here. Dave in Fanny Bay, B.C. Hi, Dave. Hey, thanks very much, Mike. Uh, You know, folks, if ever there was a time for energy, it is now. We've got to get the uh, tankers from Russia and Saudi Arabia off the St. Lawrence. And why the people of Quebec can hold the rest of our country hostage is beyond me. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that. All right, Peter, what do you say? What do you say to that argument? I mean, Trans Canada failed on Energy East because they wanted to go forward with Keystone XL. I don't think that um, you know building the largest pipeline in North America and it would take five years is going to do anything um, for the conflict in Ukraine. I think what we need to do, and the number one way that we should be uh, hurting Russia is to transition off of energy as fast as possible and do it in that united way that uh, the press secretary was talking about. Okay, Cody, I think you made the case earlier for a Russian oil embargo. Is that what you're saying? Because, you know, Europe especially relies on that Russian energy. So wouldn't that be just be hurting our own allies and hurting the rest of Europe if you did that? The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking about getting Europe off of its collective dependence on Russian oil and gas. And my quote earlier about the embargo was coming from the Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs. The groups, the actions that we as a country have done to block things like Energy East, it would allow Canada, first and foremost, to be more self-sufficient, 
more upgrading of Canadian oil. If we replaced all oil, oil imports to Canada, we would reduce emissions and save money. Mm. Second, BC natural gas, Alberta oil, Saskatchewan oil and potash, and oil from other parts of the Atlantic, we can help get natural gas and oil to Europe and around the world to help our allies and to displace uh, oil and energy from countries like Russia. And we see the impacts of that today with, with there's no sanctions because energy is life. And yes, we need wind and solar, but we need an inclusive, realistic approach to how we're going to keep society functioning. As long as the world needs oil and gas, it should be Canadian, full stop. Okay, Okay, let's go to Kevin on the line in Surrey. Hi, Kevin, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I sort of sympathize with both uh, both sets of uh, opinion there. But um, I think 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, there was always an explanation for why we needed to keep going with the oil and gas. I think it's just going to be a mistake if we keep going down that path. Um, we'll be in the same place in 10 years and in 20 years with exactly the same problems, possibly worse. Okay, Cody, what do you say to that? I mean, Canada's eighth largest wind capacity in the world, and we're one of the cleanest electrical grids. We've got an amazing record, but we have to be honest and realistic that we need all energy for a long time to come. And we have the most climate-focused oil and gas industry on Earth. Getting our oil and gas to the world makes sense for Canadian families and the global climate. Okay, Peter, go ahead. Again, you know, if we are still burning fossil fuels in 2050, uh, the world will be significantly warmer. We'll have a year like we saw last year, every year, and people will die. We can do this. We can transition off of fossil fuels rapidly. And in fact, the report that came out says that we absolutely need to. Um, So I just... The whole argument is predicated on we're going to be needing needing this stuff forever. Well, that's what they said about coal 10 years ago. And, you know, look where coal is now. It's, uh, it's demand, global demand for coal has, for coal has declined, right. and, um, and we're doing it. So we just need to do it faster. Squeeze in one more call. Mike, Mike and Langley. Mike, go ahead. Please keep it brief. Absolutely. I don't see electric earth moving machines stripping out all the materials needed to make the batteries and everything. Guys, electricity, as great as it is, it has to be what your guest just said, a transition. You cannot just flip a switch. Look at California. Rolling blackouts, incredibly high prices to run things with electricity during peak periods. Okay, Mike, thank you for the call. Guys, I'll give you like 20 seconds each here to wrap up. Cody, go ahead. What's happening in Ukraine is a tragedy, and we need to support those families with humanitarian aid and come, come together with our allies around the world to reduce our, our reliance on energy and resources from countries that may okay. not share the same values or focus on environmental, social, and governance Peter. that we have. Peter, 20 seconds. We absolutely should be reducing our reliance on Russian oil. Like, I'm all for an embargo on oil and gas from Russia. But the answer is not to burn more oil and gas from Alberta. It's to make that wartime level mobilization of renewable energy as fast as possible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, welcome back. There's lots of great new shows premiering on the History Channel right now. One of my favorite channels, including Adam Eats the 80s, starring food guru Adam Richman on a culinary tour through the 1980s, taking a bite out of some of the most popular and iconic foods of the decades. I've got Adam standing by. First, have a listen to a little bit of the trailer here. This is what I do for you. The 1980s was a deliciously doughy decade. You were either making dough, baking dough, or eating it. Whether it was Auntie Anne's decision to expand into malls and stick with their recipe for all of these years, or Domino's attempting to cut a slice of the breakfast market with a pizza gone too soon. The echoes of the 80s can still be heard today, and some of them are really, really tasty. Adam Eats the 80s. New series, Sunday, February 27th to 10th, only on the History Channel. All right. Adam Eats the 80s, now on the History Channel. And Adam Richmond joins me now. Hi, Adam. Thanks for coming on to talk about this. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Okay. I'm fired up for this show after listening to that uh, promo there. And, man, this is an interesting idea. And certainly the 1980s. It's right in my demographic wheelhouse here, for sure. A lot of people will remember the 80s. They'll remember some of the, I guess, the unique foods. How did you come up with this idea to do a TV series on food of the 1980s? Well, I think, I mean, all credit's due to History Channel. That's the truth of it. I think that they're just aware that people's love of that decade, their sense of nostalgia, and I think in particular, it's just one of those decades that was so formative for certainly American food culture, if not global food culture, because of the advent of things like the microwave or more women in the workforce. So you have latchkey kids and whole new generation of white collar workers and yuppies and so on and so forth that um, they knew that, you know, if you just focus on the cool commercials, the jingles, the big hair, the shoulder pads, you have something fun to watch. But then you start bringing in like I said, microwave popcorn, things that Domino's had a breakfast pizza for six months only in 1985, or then to <laughs> go to the first ever Panda Express at the Glendale Galleria and to find out how they're all still family owned. And it was a fluke thing that the owner of a mall went into a Chinese restaurant in Burbank, California and said, could you do this at this new concept called a mall? Only in the 80s, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, and the rest is history after that. Did you say a breakfast pizza? Yes, sir, oh. I did, and it is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> it, is, it is. So, essentially, uh, Domino's tried this in a few test markets, and we went to within a mile of where the whole chain began, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And... Um, for six months in 1985, they did a partnership with USA Today newspapers where they would give you either a sweet or savory breakfast pizza, a coffee, and a newspaper. And the thing is, it was delicious. This is why I got to tell you personally, like, 
yes, I'm a child of the 80s. I love the show. But th- these are things that were so ephemeral that, like, they missed, like, they never made it to the 90s. Yeah. And the reason is not because it wasn't delicious. It's because pizza people order around the clock. But breakfast people order in a very finite window. And it was a logistic nightmare. But so to be able to go back and be like, if I was a kid in Michigan in the 80s, there's a good chance I could have had it. And I'm telling you, I'm openly begging Domino's to bring it back. It's so flippin' delicious. <laughs> okay, speaking of Adam Richmond, he's the host of Adam Eats the 80s on the History Channel. The, the big premiere was last night. Okay, so if you, if you were looking for some of these foods, Adam, that are maybe long gone, like the breakfast pizza can you, can you, how do you experience it today? Like, are you able to make some facsimiles to see what they tasted like? Or are you going strictly by, by memory? I'm sure, I'm sure you could watch the show. And if, I mean, you may <laughs> not have Domino's crust or their specific ingredients. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that made it so unique was that, um, you know, this was one of those things that faded away from the 80s, not because people's tastes changed, just because the company couldn't sustain making it. That, yeah. like, and that's what we juxtapose on the show. There are juggernauts that were born in the 80s that we follow, like Pizza Hut, Domino's, Cinnabon, mm. where it's remained unchanged. And then you have things like Bonkers, Taffy, or Keebler Cookie Magic Middles that <laughs> have gone the way of the dodo. Okay, so last night in the premiere of, of the series, you uh, featured some iconic... 1980s candies and a lot of people out there will remember some of these let's talk about some of these adam so you got big league chew the uh, chewing gum big league chew i remember that one that's the one that came in like a pouch it looked like i think it was supposed to look like chewing tobacco right exactly right yeah yeah exactly 100 right yeah and again like that was literally the first episode of this whole series we shot and you, like, I felt myself <laughs> regressing and becoming like a 13 year old kid or a 10 year old kid in the baseball dugout. And you realize, like, again, the ball player who created it was a relief pitcher playing for a team owned by the actor Kurt Russell's dad that Kurt Russell played on. And he went to the home of a Bat Boy's mom. He went to the kitchen of a 14 year old Bat Boy's mom to experiment, make the first batch. And she's still alive, thank God. We went to her kitchen, and so help me God, her name is Candy Field. <laughs> Candy <laughs> Field. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh. And she, what, she, so she whipped up the first batch of Big League chew, Chewing Gum? The, the thing, it's even, so <laughs> it was Rob Nelson, and he won't get mad at me for saying because he said it on camera. Basically, yeah, he saw this 14-year-old bat boy he knew, reaching into a pouch and eating something dark. He's like, I know your mom. She'd break your arm. He said, relax. It's licorice, but I cut it with <laughs> a pizza cutter. So he turned to his buddy, former Yankee Jim Bouton, said, listen, there may be something there. He goes, I hate tobacco too, but what if we shredded chewing gum? They yeah. came up with the name, and he didn't have a kitchen. He said it was four ball players living in the same place and they had a coffee maker. So he went to the Bat Boy's mom's, went to the Bat Boy's house to use his mom's kitchen to buy, he bought a, uh, a kit out of People magazine, uh, how to make bubble gum, and he low key wanted to also hit on the bad boy's older sister, who he said looked like a young Demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Okay, I love it. Okay, now speaking of candies that are designed to look like a tobacco product, you also featured in the premiere 
chocolate cigars and candy cigarettes. And I remember when I was a kid, the, the Popeye cigarettes. Remember those? Those candy candy cigarettes? I think they were called Popeye cigarettes. There were there was a brand. They there there were there's always like a facsimile of an actual brand. There was a version of Lucky Strike and of Winston and Paul Mall and such. And if you got the bubblegum ones, you'd blow through it so the powdered sugar would look like smoke. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the upper level classes. Are those, like ele- are those like illegal now? Is it illegal to make candy that looks like a cigarette? Well, I think that's kind of what we were saying. The illegal, the legality becomes slippery uh, depending upon where you are. But I think now people's social consciousness, I mean, we show they had candy in guns, candy <laughs> in toilets. Candy in trash cans, coffins, hypodermic <laughs> needles, grenades full of candy. Well, like, uh, th- that's the thing in the 80s. There just wasn't that kind of, you know, purview. Like, th- there wasn't that kind of overview uh, process, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, people got away with murder. I mean, we, they, <laughs> they were the garbage pail kids. Kids collected these wildly grotesque, nuts, a- amazing things of these little cabbage patch kid facsimiles with boogers and getting squished by trains and we loved it yeah okay remind me of that one now because that was also on the premiere the garbage pail kids candy yes. so that was kind of yes. a knockoff on the it was a bit of a knockoff on the cabbage patch kid dolls is that right well it wasn't the candy came later they were cards and they were stickers. okay yeah and that and there were always two essentially i think to the same image and I always remember because my, my the one for and everyone you always knew the one for your name, and my uh, atomic atom is the actual uh, sort of logo, if you will. But no, so Cabbage Patch Kids were big, and that was the thing certainly in the United States where you had Ronald Reagan in the 1980s talking about how America was a shining city on a hill, returned traditional American values, and that was the Cabbage Patch Kid. And then there was the response. There was the counterculture with punk rock and so on. And that's garbage pail kids. And kids <laughs> everywhere loved it. And if your parents thought it was gross, you loved it all the more. And that's, and that's it. And it was so massive. Uh, original unopened packs and original first generation cards are worth thousands of dollars. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, man, that nostalgia market. People will pay big money for this stuff for sure. Okay, so it's a 10-part series, Adam, and the premiere last night on the History Channel. What can people expect? You know, I think you've whetted the appetite for people here to tune this in, check check out your show. What can people expect from the rest of the series here? I'm going to be honest, because this was an absolute blast to to shoot. Um, Seriously, so... It's origin stories on the foods and flavors that came out in the 80s that went on to become national and global icons, but also we go to food laboratories and we have true food scientists recreate flavors and foods that are gone. So we resurrect them, we create them, we make them for the first time in 30, 40 years, but also we get to do the deep dive into the commercials, the jingles, the infomercials, the Ginsu knives, the juicers. <laughs> uh, seriously, I do the whole, I cut the can and I cut the tomato in the Ginsu commercial. <laughs> and um, it's just, I guarantee you, if if you're a child of the 80s or you live through the 80s, you're going to look at, go, I had that shirt, I had that bike, I had that toy, whatever. 
And if not, you're just going to see so much delicious food and learn so much cool stuff that it's going to be an absolute blast. And we is, try to is there, it look is, as easy as possible. Is there any particular, like as a child of the 80s yourself and your excitement to shoot this show, like was there any particular food item or trend that you were particularly excited to kind of revive and try again? That's such a great question. You know what it was that it was a surprise to me. This is the honest truth that I didn't expect. It's it's a lot of the other sensory stuff when it comes to the packaged foods. For me, uh, I never realized how much I missed um, like opening the way like old old uh, soda cans, for example. Uh Now, when you open a can of soda, you kind of fold it back, pop the top of the can, and then you fold the pull tab back down and you drink. Sure. But back in the day, you'd hook your finger in and rip off the top of the can. It's called yes. the top can. And you'd, you'd pull it off and you'd have this ring and you could propose to your third grade girlfriend or pretend <laughs> you had superpowers. So just the visceral memory of just tearing that can open or how old soda bottles were made of glass that had a styrofoam wrapper. And as almost like a nervous habit, people would peel that wrapper off almost like an orange and like like and and unwrap it and those little moments that sensory like there's things that are kind of inconsequential in your day-to-day life and then when you don't have them anymore and you get to re-experience them in terms of foods i mean gosh the original 1980s mcdonald's french fries the ones that were fried in beef tallow oh Oh, yes my brother delicious (laughs) delicious Adam, I love it. It's a great concept for a show. Good luck with it. I'll be tuning in. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Justin Trudeau government's ban on assault-style firearms now. It's an issue we have followed here on the show, and it's been nearly two years since the Trudeau government announced this ban on hundreds of different assault-style weapons. We're still waiting to see how this national buyback program would work allowing owners of these now-banned firearms to sell them back to the government. Now, the Trudeau government recently launched an advertising campaign in support of this program. You have probably heard this ad playing on the show recently. Let's have a listen to it here now. Gun violence has risen in recent years across Canada. Shootings have become more common. Many Canadians feel threatened in their own communities. The Government of Canada is taking action to help keep Canadians safe by banning assault-style firearms, strengthening gun control laws, and targeting gang violence and illegal firearms trafficking. By working together, we can reduce gun violence. Okay, let's just... All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Najma Ahmed, co-chair, Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Dr. Ahmed, thank you for coming on today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so when we hear that ad and about the uh, ban on assault-style weapons in Canada, what, what goes through your mind? Like, are you satisfied as a, one of the leading gun control experts and advocates here in Canada on this file? Like, are you satisfied with what the government has done here so far? Yeah, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important step forward to ban from civilian ownership these uh, highly lethal weapons of war that have the capacity to kill and maim a lot of people in a very short period of time. We know the evidence in the U.S. that during the period of the 10-year uh, federal assault weapons ban in the U.S. Um, had that stayed in effect, uh, there would have been 
30 less public mass shootings, about 350 uh, less deaths, and about 1,200 less injuries uh, over the next decade. So it is an important evidence-based public health approach to reduce um, uh, civilian deaths, particularly from, from public mass shootings and school shootings. I think it's an important step forward. Uh, as we know, you know, gun violence is a multifaceted uh, sort of problem. We know that in Canada, the large majority of gun deaths are from suicide, so that requires a slightly different approach compared to interpersonal violence, compared to domestic homicide, and compared to, to public mass shootings. But I do think that an evidence-based <clears throat> approach using public health principles uh, will help Canadians be safer. When you when you describe these banned weapons here as they're designed to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time, I mean, the Prime Minister has also made similar comments. And I know that when I speak to gun rights advocates, they get upset and angry over that descriptor because they will say, well, no, these are actually semi-automatic rifles that have a low-capacity magazine legally available to them, and you have to pull the trigger one time for each bullet that's fired. It's not like it's a like a machine gun where you can like spray bullets out endlessly. So how is that? Like when people call these these weapons, they're designed to kill as many people as rapidly as possible. How is that true if it's not a fully automatic weapon? Yeah, it's a good question. So interesting that the people who advocate for having these weapons proliferate in society, their defense is, well, it's not a machine gun. I mean, right. uh, think about that for a second. Well, you know, it's not a machine gun. Uh, sure, okay, it's not a fully automatic machine gun that um, that armies would use in, in combat. Thank goodness, because we don't want those uh, loose in our society. But sure. the truth is that weapons like the AR-15 are the most commonly uh, used semi-automatic weapon uh, used in mass shootings worldwide in the U.S. It is the weapon that was used in the mosque massacre in New Zealand. Um, And the idea that it has low-capacity magazines, that's not exactly true. Uh, That's true that they're not, um, that those are the ones that are legally available, but these magazines are very easily modifiable to make them high-capacity magazines. And in fact, that's very frequently what's done uh, in public mass shootings and school shootings. So it's a question of, do we want to keep our citizens safe? Uh, what, what is the purpose of these weapons beyond, um, beyond sh- shooting rapidly uh, uh, and with rapid fire capacity? <clears throat> it is true that the magazines that uh, in Canada, high-capacity magazines are, are banned. But the problem is, the loophole is, that the magazines that are available, are it's not that difficult to modify them and make them high capacity. What? And therefore, the weapon that receives that, 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 that high capacity magazine is what's banned in this order and council. Okay, speaking of Dr. Najma Ahmed, Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns, what is the status of the buyback program where the government would buy back these now banned firearms from their owners what's what's going on with that has it been delayed you know i don't have any specific information to tell you that's credible uh i know that it was proposed in the original oic the two-year amnesty period which i think is up i think in 
pretty soon this spring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't uh, don't really know. Uh, our position is that something that is effective in getting as many weapons off the streets as possible uh, would be what we would support. But I don't have any specific information for you from you for you about what the government's what plans a, are. What about a handgun ban? I mean, that's also been kicked around in Canada, and I know the government has talked about letting municipalities ban handguns potentially, and we've had regional mayors here in Metro Vancouver, the mayor of Vancouver, the mayor of Surrey, they go, yeah, this would be a good idea, ban handguns. What is the status of that? And would you like to see a, a, a Canada-wide handgun ban? What we would like to see is a national strategy to deal with the proliferation of, of semi-automatic handguns, handguns that can receive uh, um, reloadable magazines. And that should include uh, efforts to decrease the illegal smuggling of these weapons across the border. And for sure, we, uh, we think that, you know, in cities where there's a lot of interpersonal violence, uh, if we can reduce the prevalence of these firearms by making it illegal to possess them, that, that, could, that is an important step forward. Uh, our position is that really uh, a national strategy that would make it um, less, less you know, illegal to possess these weapons anywhere. Because as you, as you can imagine, sure, just if Surrey bans them or Toronto bans them, what, what's going to stop that people from just outside the, uh, the borders of the city from having them and bringing them into the city? It's going to be a very right. difficult thing to enforce. Uh, so we think we need a national strategy on this, but at least uh, the government's prepared to have a conversation about the fact that there are far too many semi-automatic handguns in our homes and communities. Okay. Thank you for coming on to talk about this today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, we always get a ton of calls on this. Uh, you heard my conversation there with the head of Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns talking about this assault-style weapon ban. Rod Giltaka is the head of Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Rod, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Rod, you've heard all the arguments in favor of this program. What's the other side here? I mean, we hear, you know, it's often brought up, oh, these are guns that are designed to kill the most human beings possible in the shortest amount of time. What do you say to that when you hear it? Well, of course, it's it, it's entirely untrue. And and even uh, Dr. Um, Ahmed had, had even mentioned, you know, well, you know, the other side, meaning us, we're going to say these aren't machine guns, and they aren't. Though right, there are right. firearms that were designed for that purpose. They're automatic weapons that the military uses. These have never been automatic weapons that the military uses. So it's, uh, and we, we possess these firearms for, for 60 years, 70 years, in some cases longer in Canada. And there's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we use them safely every what, single day. What do you say when people say, why does anybody need an AR-15? Like, you know, Trudeau famously said, oh, you don't need an AR-15 to go hunt a deer, even though it's illegal to hunt a deer with an AR-15 anyway. But, you know, people can take them to a gun range and use them for, for target practice, for sports shooting. That's all, that's all you can use them for, correct? That's, right. that, that's correct. And they're yeah. registered, and there is extremely strict laws on storage and transportation. You can't even take them anywhere other than a gun range um, virtually. And, yeah, it's, it's, I just want to stress, we've been using these. We've had these guns for 50 years in Canada. We've been using them safely out of, you know, hundreds of thousands of times per year. People safely use, transport, store, responsibly own these guns. We've never had a mass shooting with an AR-15. We've barely even had a shooting at all with an AR-15 in Canadian history. So that's in Canada, right? important thing to deal with, right? All of a sudden. 
Okay, uh, Dr. Ahmed, I think she's, I think she's pointing, when she's talking about, well, school shootings, we've seen school shootings with AR-15s. Is that like in the United States she's talking, or? Well, or yeah, I mean, the, it's the misinformation, well, it's not misinformation, it's disinformation that gets circulated by her organization. It's, it's, it's atrocious. Um, number one, to get, well, this, this entire reliance on U.S. statistics. There's lots of other countries that have these guns and have guns in general. And we have our own statistics and our own evidence and peer-reviewed studies here in Canada that don't support her positions. So, it's yeah, it's frustrating as, a, as somebody that wants to stick to evidence, as she claims to want to do. Let's uh, take a couple of phone calls here, see what people think. Kevin on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Kevin, go ahead. Hey, well, I've got kind of an interesting perspective. I'm a firearms owner, and my main issue is the speech. She was saying, hey, uh, let's, you know, they're all over the streets. And we want to get them off the streets. Well, are we talking about legal, you know, gun owners who have them in their homes, lawfully, safely locked up? And that's totally different than the streets. Um, if we're going to get them off the streets completely and get them out of everyone's homes, great. Let's ban all firearms in Canada. If that's the argument, then that's a different argument. And I'm okay with that. If we're going to get rid of them all in Canada, okay. But if we're going to say AR-15s are dangerous, well, let's get rid of those. Oh, well, shotguns are dangerous. Let's get rid of those. It's a disingenuine argument, and that's my okay. main issue. Okay, thanks for that. Well, no one's arguing that rifles and shotguns that are used for hunting are going to be banned in Canada. But, Rod, your thoughts? Well, I mean, it, what what he just said is essentially true, right? Either either guns are too dangerous to own or they aren't. And guns can be dangerous, right? They, they shoot a projectile, and that can be very destructive, just like cars and motorcycles and drugs and alcohol and tobacco. These are all dangerous things. We have them in our society for reasons, and we reasonably have conversations to figure out how dangerous are these things? Do they serve a purpose in our society? Are we okay with accepting some risk to have some level of freedom? And those are articulate conversations that have to, that have to take place around firearms too, but it's very difficult yeah. in our society to what, do that for some reason. What is the status of the buyback program? Is that delayed now, or what's happening there? Well, I don't know that it's delayed. It's just never happened. And we're, oh. we're quickly approaching the May 1st end of the amnesty where people like me will become like uh, viewed by like hardened criminals uh, by the government if they don't do something or extend the amnesty. Right. So right now you're allowed to possess these these banned firearms, but you, you can't you have to keep them locked up. You can't do anything with them. Right. But you can still possess yeah, them, at least right. for now. Is that right. OK. Paul yeah. and Chilliwack. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. The part that really chops me on all this is the continual reference to lawfully owned firearms being the problem when they're not. I did 35 years as a police officer. I'm an active sports shooter. None of these people are ever coming out to meet us or talk to us. They're forming their own opinion. As Rod says, using United States, you know, occurrences, this is not that big of an issue. We're a country of 36 million people about... A hundred people a year die from, you know, purposely discharging fiery arms. You know, it's not as, you know, it's bad. That's bad that a hundred people die. But that's the average since yeah. 1994. Okay, you thank know, you. And, and, and the way it's painted, it's like it's happening. Thousands of people are dying every day. Right. Okay, thank you for that, Paul. I guess the other one, Rod, for your thoughts is, you know, if the argument is we want to take away legally owned firearms from law-abiding citizens that this is somehow going to make us safer i mean is there any is there any evidence that 
legally owned and registered firearms are being like stolen and used by criminals to kill people? Well, there are. We got a minute. We only one, we got one minute. We got one minute left. Go ahead. <laughs> but it's the it's the it's a drastic minority of firearms used in criminal activity. And besides, if you're really concerned about violence, then we need to deal with violence. It's a, yeah. firearm violence. It's violence. So every dollar that we spend on taking people like my guns and and Paul's guns is a dollar not spent on reducing violence and dealing with our societal issues. And that's a that's yeah. the real problem for us. Okay, Rod. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it, Mike.